You're listening to the Berkeley Technology Law Journal podcast. I'm Andy Zakrich. And I'm Jimena Velasquez-Arenas. Today on the podcast, we will be speaking with Professor Scott Skinner-Thompson. Professor Skinner-Thompson is an Associate Professor of Law at the University of Colorado Law School, where he is also an affiliate faculty member of the LGBTQ Studies Program. Before Colorado Law, Professor Skinner-Thompson was a visiting lecturing fellow at Duke University School of Law and an acting assistant professor of lawyering at New York University School of Law. He also clerked for Judge Robert Shatney of the United States District Court for the District of Connecticut, as well as Judge Dolores Sloviter of the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Professor Skinner Thompson received a JD and an LLM degree from Duke University School of Law in 2008. Professor Skinner Thompson was selected as one of the best LGBT lawyers under 40 by the National LGBT Bar Association in 2014. While in practice, he served as co-counsel with the ACLU LGBT and HIV Project, the Center for Constitutional Rights, the Transgender Law Center, and the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. We are excited to have Professor Skinner Thompson on the podcast today to discuss his article entitled Performative Privacy, his new book, Privacy at the Margins, and the panel discussion on the potential conception of privacy as a civil right, from BTLJ Symposium Technology Law as a Vehicle for Anti-Racism, on November 13th, 2020. Here is our big conversation with Professor Scott Skinner-Thompson. So thank you so much, Professor Skinner-Thompson, for being on the podcast today. We're really excited to speak with you. Um, and our first question for you is, what made you interested in researching the role of privacy in the lives of different marginalized communities? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me, um, Andy. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I, I, I got interested in uh, issues of privacy, particularly as they relate to marginalized communities. When I was in private practice, I was able to partner with the ACLU LGBT and HIV project um, to research um, a state um, that had fertile um, uh, local state constitutional privacy law that might be used to challenge um, restrictive uh, gender marker law laws on government identification uh, documents. And so, um, you know, through that research, um, uh, it really helped highlight to me that uh, you know privacy in this instance for members of the queer community is critically important not just for um, you know privacy sake right but because privacy is is, is uh, fundamental to preventing a whole host of other very concrete and material kinds of harms in this instance if a, a gender nonconforming or trans person doesn't have a, a government identification document that corresponds with their uh, gender expression. Every time they present that document, they may be outed, um, and that can lead to discrimination uh, or, or, or even worse, uh, violence. So this that was sort of my first introduction to um, the critical role that privacy played for uh, members of different marginalized uh, communities. And, um, you know, once I left practice and um, uh, started um, doing uh, my own scholarship, I really um, started to see that that was not uh, unique to uh, the queer community by, by any stretch, but was actually uh, held true across a whole variety of different marginalized groups. Um, and so you wrote your article 
called Performative Privacy in 2017. Um, what inspired you at that point to write the article? You know, at, at, at first, my research, I, I was very focused on basically preventing outings, um, akin to what I just described with um, sort of administrative regulations that, uh, you know, are purportedly neutral, but disclose sensitive information about people, um, and that leads to uh, harm. And I, and I still uh, am very interested in that, and part of the book focuses on that, undoubtedly. Uh, but performative privacy, uh, which was an article and, and plays an important part in in, in my book, uh, Privacy at the Margins, uh, looks at how marginalized communities are actually resisting um, surveillance and um, taking efforts to uh, uh, protect um, themselves from a whole host of surveillance regimes, whether they be corporate, um, carceral, or administrative. And so um, what I found was that um, a lot of times dip members of different marginalized groups are engaged in uh, forms of privacy resistance. And I argue that these um, acts of uh, functional functional efforts to maintain privacy, whether in whether in, in public by, you know, wearing uh, masks or hoodies or online by using encryption uh, technology, um, Tor, for, um, et cetera, um, were not just serving that functional purpose of keeping something secret, though they did that, but they were also outwardly saying something, something expressive to the surveillers, um, and that it was a statement of resistance. And indeed, um, the surveillers understand these functional efforts to maintain privacy as expressive and say, oh, if, you're if you care about privacy and are taking efforts to, to protect it, uh, well, you're expressing something intimidating. We're going to use an old anti-mask law to, to throw you, the Occupy uh, protester in jail because you're wearing a mask because it's in quote unquote intimidating. Um, and I believe that in a social context of pervasive surveillance, that every step we take to protect our privacy takes on a heightened expressive value, right? Because it's deviating from the social norm of privacy uh, surrender. The state views it as um, expressive, is targeting it for additional regulation. Um, and, and viewed in this light, I believe that the privacy um, efforts should be entitled to uh, First Amendment uh, protection under a long line of jurisprudence uh, protecting expressive uh, um, conduct or um, uh, symbolic speech. So in your 2017 article, Performative Privacy, you frame the narrative on privacy resistance in a particular way. But can you give us a brief summary of what you see as the current dominant approach to privacy law? Excellent question. Yeah, and, and I think the, um, you know, some speakers at the conference um, did a great job of setting the stage too, if I recall, uh, Alvaro Bedoya um, uh, focused and, and underscored the fact that privacy has oftentimes been, been framed and thought of in um, sort of abstract terms with reference to other philosophical values such as dignity um, or autonomy. And, and undoubtedly that's true. It does advance those uh, values. But I think that courts and lawmakers have a hard time um, weighing uh, privacy against security concerns when it's conceptualized. So um, uh, abstractly. And so, uh, you know, in uh, the book and, and, and in my other scholarship, I try to center how privacy is, is really uh, critical to uh, 
concrete um, material injuries, you know, preventing discrimination, preventing violence, um, or uh, as is the case in, in, in under the concept of performative privacy, of uh, it's it's a direct form of uh, resistance to uh, the state. And I think courts are able to grasp those harms, grasp the material harms, and grasp the expressive harms, um, or, or will be able to um, in a, in a uh, much more easily than they are. Um, more uh, philosophical um, conceptions of privacy harm. So I'm currently in an information privacy law class right now, and we have learned that, and this may be a bit of an overgeneralization, but we've essentially learned that public privacy in United States law does not exist. And so I was really interested when you wrote about the concept of public privacy um, in your article and potentially in your book, and I was hoping you could explain this concept a bit for us and for our listeners. Undoubtedly, uh, the idea that there is no privacy once information is exposed to another person or a third party, or once you go out your door um, into the public uh, has played a extremely detrimental and uh, limiting role for legal protections of uh, privacy. In essence, um, legal privacy rights are defined based on lived privacy. If you are not functionally able to keep something completely secret, what Daniel Solov refers to as the secrecy paradigm, then your legal privacy rights are um, non-existence. And, and this, this framework, which is, uh, as, as you rightly know, um, uh, well, relatively well entrenched in uh, American privacy uh, doctrine, has particularly negative consequences for uh, people from marginalized c communities. For example, um, it, 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 if you are um, homeless or housing insecure and cannot afford to build the literal walls needed to keep your life private, then you have no legal privacy rights, which allows the government uh, wholesale access to, to search your, your uh, temporary shelter and, and, and remove it from public uh, space as, as an example. Um, and given the degree to which uh, marginalized communities, people of color, queer people, uh, immigrants are subjected to heightened government surveillance, right? They're, they're scrutinized more. And once they're scrutinized, once the information is, is observed, then all other privacy rights go out of uh, the door. That means uh, that, that heightened scrutiny leads to a further erosion of uh, privacy rights. So undoubtedly, um, and this is the first chapter of the book, is talking about how that framework, which you um, underscore of no privacy in public, um, is particularly damaging for marginalized communities. And yet, I believe that notwithstanding this widespread surveillance, that many people, including uh, in particular people from marginalized uh, communities, do take um, subtle but significant efforts to um, guard their uh, information every day. You know, and we, we, we all experience this in different ways. You don't need to be sort of a technology uh, savant to, to, to get uh, to get this concept. Like if you you y'all are, are in the Bay Area, so maybe um, you take the BART um, or pre pre pandemic, uh, you know, you take public transport port. Um, certainly, you've, you've been on your phone or, or had a book um, or texting something and, and thought, oh, maybe I don't want the commuter, my fellow commuter next to me uh, to see that. So you might shield it, right? Like we're, and we do that kind of thing 
frequently back when we were allowed to go into public safely, like we, we would, you know, hush, hush your tones at a restaurant if you, if you were afraid of being um, overturned. And so um, all of which is to say that uh, as, a, as, a, as a lived matter, we actually do expect privacy in public and we do take um, uh, subtle but significant efforts to maintain our privacy in public. And so the examples I gave are just very run of the mill, but right, but they're, they're much more um, drastic ones, right? Wearing a mask to a protest, um, using signal, using other uh, encryption technology. And um, into, and, I, and my argument is that in, in the social landscape and the legal landscape that you so rightly describe, where there is no privacy in public, that, okay, that's, that's the sort of norm we've been socialized to. But when we take those efforts to maintain privacy, the state no- notices, they target us for additional surveillance, they understand we're expressing resistance. And as such, um, our privacy efforts should be entitled to First Amendment um, protection, even though they may not get uh, Fourth Amendment uh, protection. That was such a, a wonderful presentation of the issue. And in fact, when I was reading the, your article, I, I was thinking about how privacy seems like this currency where if you're wealthy enough to have those walls, as you mentioned, or those gates, then you can buy into privacy um, and otherwise not in how it's framed as r- around property. Uh, or Fourth Amendment protections. But increasingly, something that we're seeing is with the advent of current technologies, that public-private divide is also uh, different. Um, Do you think that privacy law has kept up with the current technologies, such as, um, you know, life on Zoom or otherwise? Two uh, excellent points, Hemene. And the first point, I mean, about the commodification, um, I think is absolutely uh, critical. And and I don't, I talk a lot about this in my own scholarship, but others such as Julie Cohen at Georgetown and Kiara Bridges um, at at your great uh, law school have have talked about that and how that's extremely problematic, right? That we we, we think of our information in this um, datafied way that can be traded away, that if we just, you know, that, oh, you know, we're just trading it to Facebook for access to this um, great service that they uh, provide us, uh, sarcasm intended. Um, and so, uh, th- you know, that, that, is a, that is a critical piece of, of the puzzle, um, no doubt. And so, um, uh, and I'm, I've, I've, your first point was so great that I, I, I got lost in it and forgot the second uh, point. So maybe you can remind me. Yeah, absolutely. So the it was a two-parter question. Um, and the second the second part of it is um given that so much of our, our experiences and lives increasingly are happening online, electronically, do you think that current privacy law has kept up with the technologies that are increasingly absorbing um our lives? So um you know, and and this is 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 this is a an issue that has I, I think different privacy scholars view differently. There are those who would say no, like the law, the the pro, the real the real problem is not that law is like slow to catch up. Um, others others feel differently. Um, what I'll say is I I think um, that we need to as uh, Sophia uh, um, explained at the conference reject this sort of. Um, tech fatalism, right? That, oh, well, the genie's out of the bottle or, you know, the toothpaste is out of the, the, um, 
tube. Uh, and so, you know, we'll never get our, our privacy back. And, and I, I, I couldn't agree more that that should be uh, uh, that, that um, sort of, oh, it's a fait accompli uh, mindset should be pushed back on. And this is Shoshana Zuboff in her great book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, uh, rightly notes that that's actually, that's the message that social media companies and tech giants want us to have, right? Like they want us to feel defeated, okay? Because then we, we stop uh, resisting. And and I, I, I just don't think that's true. I, have have we, has our privacy diminished net um, 20 years ago? I think the answer to that question is undoubtedly yes. Um, is there a way to um, reverse course and push back on these technologies? Absolutely. And, and you know, and uh, th- there is a way um, and, and this is the course of human history, right? Like movements, people that are uh, dedicated to a cause see something happening and they um, uh, change it. And 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 there's no reason why um, the the norms regarding uh, privacy loss that have been ingrained in us by uh, tech companies cannot be uh, pushed against. And I actually think, um, you know, the fact that we're having this conversation, the fact that you had your great conference is evidence of the fact that people are indeed waking up uh, to to this and, and tech companies um, and, and government surveillance alike are um, coming under increased uh, scrutiny. Now, make no mistake, uh, you know, I don't want you to think I'm a Luddite here and, and think all tech is bad. That's not my position. I use it and, I, and, I, and, I, and we benefited from it on uh, many scales, but uh, that's not to say it cannot be um, improved. And as, um, you know, uh, m- many people in the, not, not less so the legal con- um uh, context, but the computer science and communications context, such as Anna Lauren Hoffman at University of Washington, have been arguing. Look, it's like we need to incorporate better first principles into the design process uh, from the beginning, and not just um, uh, you know uh, create the tech and then be like, oh, what have we done? I, I, I've been using this line a lot. I don't, you know. Y- y- Folks may or may not um, have watched Jurassic Park, but when I was a kid, it was like, you know, the big, it was the cat's meow, so to speak. And there's this line in the movie where they're like, the scientists were too busy asking whether they could create the dinosaurs that they never stopped to ask uh, whether or not they should. And like, and that's the same ethos that describes a lot of our tech development. And I think we need to um, inculcate the the should question uh, in advance of the could question. Um, it's actually really fascinating that you'd say that because we spoke with um, a professor and a student at University of Washington on our last podcast, and they had a similar sentiment um, where it's the law that's not respond or the law can't like could respond, but the like the technology is not moving too fast, essentially. Um, but this is also a really good segue um, because you were speaking about pushing back and um, movements. And while we can't change the technology because we're lawyers, you explore this concept of performative privacy in your works. And I was hoping you could expand on that and then also maybe give a few examples of performative privacy to illustrate it for our listeners. Yeah, so the the concept of performative privacy is that... um, so, so we're living in this social world, as, as you've aptly described, where um, the norms, um, both interpersonal and vis-a-vis the government, are of one of information surrender. Um, and so 
I, I believe that, that into that space, people, uh, including many members of marginalized groups, are trying to claim back and take steps, functional steps, to resist that uh, information surrender. Um, and that when they're doing so, they're not just protecting something inward, right? They're expressing something outward and they're reshaping norms, uh, expressing uh, resistance. Um, and so examples include, um, you know, uh, you know, I think more obvious or ultra forms of privacy resistance include, uh, you know, there are designers such as Adam Harvey, who has created um, sort of different makeup uh, styling that can subvert facial recognition technology or um, uh, apparel that can block uh, infrared heat detection. Um, uh, so those are sort of, you know, as I said, like high tech, uh, sort of very obviously expressive, right? Like it's art, um, essentially. But um, they're, they're more commonplace forms as, as well. And, and I think, um, you know, and again, and to be clear, I, 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 and this is something I emphasize in the book, you know, people engage in some of the acts that I'm about to describe for lots of different reasons. Okay. And, and they're there. And I'm, I'm, I'm never trying to, um, I'm not trying to suggest that a particular person is, is doing it for um, resistance. Um, but I think the government views it as resistance, which is important to uh, whether or not they intend it as such, which is important to the first amendment analysis. And I can talk about that more in, in a minute if you like, but you know, when, when a, uh, when a person of color wears a hoodie, um, you know, and as as uh, uh, underscored by the million hoodie march, right, and, and the tragic killing of, of Trayvon Martin, um, and in the scholarship of Devin Carbato and Mitu Gulati, they talk about how people of color are conditioned to sort of signal uh, compliance with authority by giving up their information, and if they do not, if they resist it, even by like wearing a hoodie, um, they're targeted for additional. Uh, surveillance. Um, if a Muslim or woman is wearing uh, a headscarf, she may be doing that for religious purposes, but the state is trying to pierce that veil, right? And 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 uh, there's a long history of colonial gays trying to, uh, in in essence, get a better view of uh, Muslim women's uh, bodies. And uh, you know, and 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 when a trans person uh, refuses to comply with a administrative regulation saying that they need to only use the restroom with the corresponds to their um, sex assigned at birth um, w that, and, and that without them and instead use the bathroom that corresponds with their gender expression. Yes, they're living their gender identity and they're um, uh, performing privacy. And so, um, you know, all, all these different examples, are they're not identical, right? They operate in slightly different ways. But I do think there's just some common themes. One of the common themes is marginalized groups and identity. And the second is like resisting um, some aspect of the surveillance um, uh, gaze. And again, I, I, um, and I want to be crystal clear. I, I don't think the privacy uh, performative or otherwise is a panacea to the myriad social ills that our society is, is facing. Like the key to stopping, you know, uh, oppression and, and, and racism is 
anti-racism. But I do believe that privacy can serve as a form of harm reduction, um, uh, mitigating the concrete injuries that are often visited upon uh, marginalized communities. Put differently, I think it's an important uh, tool in our toolkit of uh, resistance to subordination. In your article, you lay out this historical foundation, too, for the over-surveillance of certain groups. So you just mentioned, for example, the resistance through hoodies, and that was one of the elements in the article. You also mentioned um, uh, the resistance through gender expression and cyber masks, um, as well as the veil worn by Muslim women. And in all of those, I, I was finding this connection as far as the agency of the person that you mentioned as well, being one where uh, you're reframing the context from having something to hide in terms of privacy concerns to rather being being out and proud uh, in your agency and expression. But I'm really concerned along with that how um, in some in some ways that's not as much of a choice for certain groups. Um, and I guess let me be a little bit more concrete with the example that came to mind, which was just as you mentioned for the, um, the bills around the country that have surfaced in asking for uh, transgender people or gender nonconforming people to show their papers at the bathroom. Um, and the response to that being one that is not going back into the closet, but having the agency of, of their right to privacy and choosing the self-determination for what to keep private and whatnot. Um, there are certain groups that that response of assertiveness could be further detrimental, right? Like specifically within documented communities for the like. Um, so I guess the question that I'm trying to ask is how, how do these forms of, agency uh, in performative privacy, how, how do they also um, have inequitable impacts? Uh, wonderful um, question. Thank you. And, and let me just say, I thought the, the, your sort of prefatory framing of um, the sort of liberator- liberatory potential of performative privacy was beautiful and more beautiful than I put in my own words. So uh, that, that was, thank you for that. Um, but I think your question, um, about the drawbacks or limitations of this is really important. Um, and, and I think maybe put slightly different is like there's a tension right between um, uh, performative privacy and the privacy is key role for marginalized groups and uh, visibility, right? And the, the visibility is actually in certain contexts really liberating as well. Um, and I couldn't agree more. And, and I guess what, um, how I try to resolve that potential tension is that, you know, it it is, it is, it it should be up to each individual, um, whether they're, uh, and their agency, whether they are, um, you know, trying to keep aspects of their body um, secret or or not, you know, um, a lot of these involve very corporal forms of surveillance, really trying to get at the body. and, um, you know, and, and that may be linked to identity, it may not. Um, but I, I, I couldn't agree more that individual agency is what should be, um, 
should come first. Um, I don't, you know, when it comes to whether or not someone's identity or aspect of their identity should be made public or not, like I, I, I think there's real value in going public with a stigmatized characteristic. You know, there, an example of this is in the abortion rights context. You know, abortion um, uh, has been highly stigmatized in our society, and more and more uh, we're seeing, um, uh, you know, groups like Shout Your Abortion and, and other. Um, uh, courageous uh, women, um, which is not to say if you don't shout your abortion, you're not courageous. Uh, but 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 coming forward with that, right? And 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 that's great. That's amazing, um, and that can help destigmatize it. But nobody should force anybody to shout their abortion. Like that that should be up to each um, uh, person um, uh, to to talk about their reproductive. Um, health. And so, um, but I think there's another aspect of your question as well. What about the aspects of your identity that you just, you can't um, keep uh, private? And, and that's, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, one example where this really resonates for me is like in the, um, in the queer space, if you're gender nonconforming and you, you, you've like, there's no bad there, you know, if you live in an area where the bathrooms are still sex segregated, um, you know, there's just male and, and female and you, you can't, uh, quote unquote pass in either of those. What are you to do? And maybe you don't want to pass. Right. Um, it's a real limitation and a real uh, drawback, which I think gets me back to an answer to one of Andy's questions, which is like, I'm viewing this through a public health, like harm reduction uh, method. I don't think it's a panacea and the, the you know, the key solution, uh, the best solution for the, in this example is, you know, genderless bathrooms, right? Like that, that um, helps, uh, that solves the problem. Um, uh, so, so absolutely, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. It's a really um, uh, insightful point and an important uh, limitation of this uh, framework. So, so far, it sounds like we've been talking a lot about state violations of privacy, um, but increasingly we see corporate entities engaging in surveillance, um, either to data mine or sometimes they'll even hand that information over to the government. Um, and so I guess I wanted to know if you had thought about how we can apply these concepts of performative privacy um, from your works in relation to invasions of privacy from corporate or private entities um, and how we can protect against that kind of surveillance. Absolutely. Uh, they're both equally as, as important and, and in part because of, of the very first question you asked, right? That like, since the private, legal privacy rights are framed in terms of lived privacy, like a privacy invasion by a, a corporate um, entity is going to create, pave the way for government access and, and vice versa, right? Um, potentially. So um, how can thinking about privacy as expressive resistance um, help us against corporations. We don't have First Amendment rights against uh, corporations, right? The, the, the Constitution with, with uh, you know, important exceptions like the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery uh, doesn't protect us versus private parties. It protects us versus um, the government. So how does it thinking about privacy as expressive resistance help? Um, I, I think it helps in this way. So a lot of corporations when they are confronted with a privacy regulation, what do they say? They say, you can't regulate us 
from getting this information because our First Amendment rights are at issue. We have a right to uh, information gather under the First Amendment, to record. And, and the, this is playing out right now, right? Clearview AI has said uh, publicly like that they cannot be regulated. And they can go on to social media and scrape people's faces off of social media accounts and use that to train their facial recognition software, okay? Uh, and and what, why have they said they can do that? Because of the First Amendment, that they have a First Amendment right to collect that information. So a lot of times corporations will rely on the First Amendment to defend themselves against privacy regulations. But if we understand that people's efforts to uh, protect their privacy is also a form of expression under the First Amendment, then when a court is evaluating under the First Amendment, okay, is this regulation of clear view consistent with the First Amendment, then the government can say, yeah, we have this, you know, for example, um, uh, Illinois and California have, have, have relatively robust uh, privacy laws. And when applied to regulated entities, they can say, look, this is, yeah, they, there, there may be a First Amendment interest at stake uh, for Clearview, but the individuals that we're trying to protect also have a First Amendment interest um, directly related to their privacy. And that gives us the compelling government interest we need, okay, to justify um, the regulation of uh, Clearview. So understanding privacy as expressive resistance, in essence, gives the government a freer hand when trying to regulate um, private entities, which they are uh, increasingly trying to do. So to follow up on that, I couldn't help but think about the idea of consent as well as I was reading your article. Um, specifically this notion that there has to be um, a, an affirmative expression that when you're in public spaces, you're not giving away your right to privacy, as I think has been traditionally held, but rather you can still hold on to that, um, which I inevitably just associated with consenting, in, even if you're in public spaces, those, those uh, individual protections would still apply to the things that are inherent um, individual agency matters. Um, and something else that was really illuminate, illuminating in your article is that you mentioned that we could shift the focus if we thought about privacy in this, um, in this way of assenting as something that was to be celebrated and good, uh, rather than something that conveyed that we had something to hide or there was something negative in seeking out privacy protections. Um, and with that in mind, I, and I'm also thinking, what are the consequences of the era that we're living in now with COVID having perpetuated this completely unforeseen um, uh, new world of people wearing masks? And what do you think the, what do you think the effect of the pandemic uh, has in relationship to your theory of performative privacy? Super interesting. So uh, on the first point, absolutely. I mean, I think that privacy has been, you know, is, is seen people, when people think that society, we've been conditioned to think that those who care about privacy have something to hide. Um, and, you know, it needs to, we need to be suspicious of it. But at the same time, society loves expression, like people on the right and left, you know, yes, there's this concern right now about First Amendment lockerism and, and First Amendment, uh, the deregulatory First Amendment, but that notwithstanding, you know, people across the political spectrum generally think, 
that free speech is like is great. Um, and so reframing it as outward, as a part of that, as a participatory, part of participatory democracy, I think holds not just doctrinal promise, but also discursive promise in reshaping how we think about uh, privacy. Um, with regard to uh, COVID and the impact of masks, um, you know, I, I, as someone who's been writing about masks for a little bit of time, it has been interesting for me to see these headlines that are like, Masks are are now political. Uh, actually, masks have been always been pretty political. Um, you know, as the examples I uh, talk about in the, the article and book um, underscore. Um, and and I think we're seeing that um, at, at scale, right? Like people are going to protests and wearing masks. Protesters often wore masks, but now they're wearing masks. Um, well, some protesters are are wearing masks even more, and uh, they're doing it for a public health reason and for a privacy reason. Um, and I don't think that that diminishes uh, the salience of what I'm, I'm saying. If anything, I think it actually embellishes and just underscores um, this notion that what we choose to um, reveal or conceal is a highly political um, laden decision and people respond to it. And, and understand it as political, right? We have people being, you know, like targeted for, for wearing a mask for COVID-related purposes. So I, I think, if anything, it just shows that this uh, concept of uh, expressive privacy is um, has some water and uh, holds some water, and um, we're seeing it operate at scale. And we're already seeing it operate at scale even before COVID. I mean, you think back to last summer, the protests in Hong Kong, um, uh, which we talk about in the book, which but happened after the article, you know, in those protests, you have massive surveillance state, the Chinese government, um, and, and the people took to the street in, in, in huge numbers. And like, they all wore masks because they were like, we don't want you to surveil me. The police started wearing masks too, because they realized this, the protesters could surveil them and then like potentially uh, dox them. So the, the masks became, and faces, I think in a New York Times article, they talked about how faces were becoming weaponized. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that there's a growing awareness um, that uh, protecting uh, information about our, our bodies and, and faces is a politically expressive um, act. One of one of the pieces that um, within your article, you're also arguing for an expansion of the public uh, privacy space, essentially the the private expansion under a First Amendment argument instead of a, instead of Fourth Amendment protections that have typically been used. Um, and as a as a first year law student, one of the things that I I felt in that moment while while reading that is make it makes a lot of sense to tie the protections of privacy to expression, but it also gave me this uh, this grain of worry because in the private sphere is where your expression could also be freedom to discriminate, and so are you concerned about how uh, expansion of privacy rights under First Amendment could actually maybe open the gates for further discrimination. Yeah, I think that um, um, there, there's definitely truth in your descriptive account that like if, if we start associating um, 
this political expression of privacy with more marginalized groups is that going to like lead to maybe a redoubling of scrutiny of them? Um, and and I guess uh, you know um, I'd say two things. The first is that that stigma already exists, like and um, it's going to exist whether or not they're um, uh, engaging in acts of performative privacy. But but people already um, you know that animosity is, is the status quo. So I I don't I'm not. I, from a harm reduction perspective, I don't view that as like a net, um, I, I don't think that's gonna necessarily increase. Um, I do think reframing it as um, political has the potential discursively to get people to view it more positively. Um, and this is because, and again, so I, the reason I care about that privacy is not because I, I think you know privacy in and of itself is so important, but because it's a form of harm reduction for marginalized communities to prevent them from discrimination and violence. Um, so, so it's utilitarian in that uh, respect. At the same time, and, and so that, which makes you think, well, it sounds like you really care about identity politics, and I do. But our society, um, you know, as other scholars such as uh, Kenji Yoshino describe it, they, they label it, uh, in essence, pluralism anxiety, that the court and society um, there's this reticence, right? That they were like, we, we you know, the members of certain members of society want to say, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're over racism, okay? We're over sexism, we're over is Islamophobia, okay? And, and so, because that pluralism anxiety exists, even though I disagree with that, I, I don't think, I, I think identity politics still are important and that we should continue to focus on anti-racism, anti-sexism, uh, et cetera, um, that framing these acts of privacy as expressive, that is trying to get it a little bit divorced from identity may lead to um, less of the pluralism anxiety uh, attaching to them. Uh, so uh, again, it, it's it's maybe counterintuitive. Like, I care about privacy because it helps marginalized groups. But I think that thinking about it in terms of uh, expression, at least in the public privacy context, may actually lead to more protection for these marginalized groups. So we've talked a lot about um, privacy as expression as a way to protect marginalized communities and communities who are over surveilled by the government. Um, but I guess I was really curious about how you were picturing this going down in a court of law. So a more concrete question, um, imagining maybe a potential case or what this would look like if it comes in front of a judge or the Supreme Court. Andy, it's just, it's so rude to ask an academic to actually like, you know, come up with something applied that would, would work. IRL, uh, but I'll but I'll I'll take a stab at it. Um, so I, I think it could work in a, in a couple different ways. Like um, for uh, example, um, there was this case. There there have been cases where um, and and again, a, a lot of privacy defendants have you have, have relied on the First Amendment themselves, right? To say you can't regulate me. I'm what I'm doing is protected by the First Amendment. So like artists in New York taking pictures of their neighbors through their windows um, and then setting up a 
you know, including those in a, in a show. And they've said, well, this is protected by the First Amendment. You can't use your New York privacy law to come after me for taking a picture in your show. But I think that if a court adjudicating that case said, well, were members, uh, uh, were the people being surveilled also, did they have any First Amendment interest in their privacy? Um, did they try to resist it at all? Um, and if there were examples of where that happened, then I think a court could more equally weigh um, the privacy interest. And again, you know, I think it also uh, could help reframe judges' uh, formulation of the reasonable expectation of privacy test in the Fourth Amendment context, right? Because we're all being conditioned to say, oh, once you go out the door, you have no expectation of privacy. But then once we start thinking about how, well, actually people do sort of expect privacy, they are taking functional efforts. When the government tries to penetrate or overcome those efforts, in effect, dampening their speech, um, making their speech obsolete, then there might be a First Amendment claim, but uh, it could also help rejuvenate in the Fourth Amendment context what we think of as a reasonable expectation of privacy, which... Um, as you noted, is, is an extremely beleaguered and, and weak concept at the moment. So this this question is kind of turning on a bit of your utopia. <laughs> and essentially, it's what changes do you think need to happen uh, in the United States, possibly abroad, to create an information privacy regime that is more equitable? It's a big question. Um, <laughs> uh, I um, I think lots of things need to happen, and and constitutional law is um, you know, which is where I write in mostly is really only scratching the surface, right? And as um, you know, an earlier question suggested, um, it only protects us against the government, and we're going to need robust privacy regulation, and for that, we're going to need the government. Um, I do think that. Um, you know, the fact that um, Europe has led the way with the GDPR is good. That's going to put some pressure on the United States. I think California's uh, privacy law is, is going to have an impact. I think the more states do things, um, that's going to create incentive for a national law because um, regulated entities aren't going to want to have to contend with multiple uh, state different state laws, right? Like that's more onerous. They'd rather just one uniform law. So they may actually start to come out in favor of a federal law that preempts uh, the state um, laws. Um, so I think those things are going to uh, help. Um, but I, but I, I think the attack, uh, you know, has to be multi-tiered, right? We're going to need um, improvements in constitutional law, which is where I'm sort of focused. We're going to need increased individual awareness and more uh, privacy activism. And, and we're going to need more uh, regulatory action as well. And then finally, I think we're going to need to embed um, in uh, tech companies, uh, you know, more of a, 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 a design ethics um, that uh, considers uh, privacy harms at the, the front ends. So those are, the, those are sort of the starting things. Um, you know, I'm under no illusion that it's going to solve everything. But again, I don't think that perfect privacy is um, necessary, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to get us back to a world where, you know, we're like, we're living in little her hermeneutic um, uh, bubbles, right? I, I'm, I'm about decreasing the flow of information uh, to protect 
uh, us from concrete um, harms. And, and you know that, that I think if we start there, like and, and pr privilege that harm uh, as our the focus of our um, solicitude, then you know to the extent we get more than that, great. Um, so moving on to our final question. When we were reading your writing, we both commented that it was excellent. It's incredibly clear and your arguments are very well laid out. Um, and so we wanted to ask you if you had any writing related advice for law students or academic writers who may be listening. And then we also wanted to expand on that and ask if you had any general advice for law students or others who may want to pursue a career in academia as well. Well, thank you so much. That means actually a, a great, great deal to me, um, honestly. Um, and uh, I, I would say, um, I guess a few things. One, one is, um, you know, being a good writer and being a good legal writer takes practice. Like it, it really does. And um, so take, take advantage of opportunities to write. If you're still in law school, you know, take classes that have a writing um, component and, and rewrite. I mean, you know, first drafts are terrible. Um, and uh, in terms of actual concrete techniques, um, I believe the simplicity is good. Like simple, single clause sentences. Um, if you feel like you can't say a sentence, read out loud a sentence in one breath without falling on the words yourself, the sentence probably needs um, revision. So one thing I do is, is try to read uh, orally what I've, what I've written to see um, how it flows. I don't, I don't obviously do that for ev everything, but, but um, you know, particularly for introductions or things where, where it's important, I, I think that's a good um, technique. Um, uh, I think writing is fun. I think that we are, um, we tend to invest more in things we enjoy. Um, and so I, I would encourage you to, to cultivate a, a joy for writing. Um, and uh, don't don't view it as something that's necessarily uh, scary or needs to be complex. Like again, simple, simple is good. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think Experiment with different forms too. I mean, I, w one thing I try to do is like, I write law review articles, but also try to write like maybe a public education piece um, that corresponds to it. And so, you know, that that's like breaking it down, right? To a thousand words. And so you have a big brief, well, try to get it into a thousand words. I used to teach legal writing um, at NYU and we would do these, um, and I didn't come up with these, but these were some of the um, uh, gimmicks that we would deploy in, in teaching writing to make it more fun, but also to like get you to hone in on the key message. Um, you know, we were, let's say you're working on a brief. All right, try to get the, the, the argument from the brief in, in the form of a limerick or, or a tweet, right? Like try to condense it down, make it short, like cut, cut through um, the BS. So those are, those are some techniques sort of, um, you know, s some very specific and others uh, pretty broad. Um, uh, I do think it's important to get feedback on your writing, like share it with people. I felt like I really grew as a writer when I was, um, a law clerk, like I, I was lucky to have judges who, you know, um, one judge would hand mark up my writing and then we would go over 
her edits like sitting side by side together and like it was painstaking but it was so helpful um and so i think you know finding someone you know whether it's at your place of work or even just your your classmates right y'all are like you're in law school you're really smart like uh, you can help each other um i think that's a, a good way to to um improve your writing read read good writing that helps too uh, in terms of the second part of becoming, um, uh, was it was it who wanted to be an academic? Is that right? Um, you know, I, I think uh, doing a note, uh, starting your scholarship um, in law school is is really helpful. It doesn't need to be. Um, uh, it doesn't need to be big. It doesn't need to be. Um, uh, publish, but just practice writing and start to um, develop uh, um, scholarly interests, and it doesn't matter what they are. Um, uh, I, I w would say that, you know, regardless of whether you want to be an academic or, or, or anything in your career, one piece of advice I try to give students is, like, create at least two themes in your uh, resume, like two areas where you have credible expertise, um, where you could get jobs, um, and that will help you um, have some flexibility. And also, if you do go into the academic uh, job market, will allow you um, uh, a bit more breadth in terms of your subject matter uh, expertise. So that's all we had for you today. Um, but we really appreciate you coming on the show today. And we wanted to thank you um, for being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a real uh, joy, fantastic questions, and congratulations on uh, the great um, symposium as well. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. The BTLJ podcast is brought to you by podcast editors Andy Zagrich and Haley Broughton. Our executive producer is BTLJ senior online content editor Alan Holder. BTLJ's editor-in-chief is Emma Lee. If you enjoyed our podcast, please support us by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, write us at btljpodcast at gmail.com. The information presented here does not constitute legal advice. This podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only.